Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located in Central Asia, with the capital Timpu, a population of 780,000 and functioning as a parliamentary democracy, is Bhutan. In 2011, the United Nations passed a resolution suggesting that alongside measuring gross national product, countries should also aim to achieve positive results in measuring gross national happiness. The measure had been inspired by the small nation of Bhutan, which, since the 1970s, has been focused on its own citizens' happiness as much as their wealth. However, Bhutan remains in a very unique position. Surrounded by the Himalayan mountains and wedged in between China and India, it has been able to set its own internal agenda, only allowing tourists in in the 1970s and TV in the 1990s. Whilst the country no longer tops the charts in terms of global happiness, a leaderboard which is now dominated by the Nordic nations, it continues to pursue the metric and is a leader in other ways. For example, it is the only carbon-negative country in the whole world due to its dense forests. In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Bhutan, I'm joined on the show by Dr. Karma Funcho, who is a Bhutanese scholar and wrote a book entitled The History of Bhutan. Karma, thanks for joining me today. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Well, we might just start by diving straight in. Can you start by telling us how Bhutan has maintained the independence that we touched on in the introduction? Well, Bhutan um, has always remained a kind of an autonomous uh, area uh, in terms of political um, sort of existence, mainly because of its geographic location. What do you mean? It is fairly remotely located compared to many other parts of the uh, region. And because of that uh, isolated uh, geographic location, uh, it has remained fairly untouched by big powers either to the south, that's India, or to the north, that's uh, Tibet and China. But the actual political, uh, you could say, the so-called nation-state of Bhutan starts sometime in the middle of the 17th century. So a lot of people think Bhutan is a new young country. In fact, it's one of the oldest countries in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Can you just talk to us a little bit more about that foundation? Bhutan was sort of unified, we say, in the middle of the 17th century, so around 1650s. And that happened through a figure called Shabdrung Ngawang Namgyal, who was a Tibetan high priest who had to flee Tibet because of political problems in Tibet. He uh, was in conflict with the ruler of Tibet then. So he flew into exile. And here he had very strong religious base and support uh, through which he could then gradually unify the many different valley polities that existed before the middle of the 17th century. Right. So it's this key religious figure that unites all of the different tribes and chiefs that exist in Bhutan at this time into the rough nation that we know of it today. And it still remains a strongly Buddhist country to this day. But this is a period where there are huge global players jockeying for position in the region. Countries like India, Britain, China and Russia. How does Bhutan carve itself out at this time? We are located on the southern side of the Himalayan watershed. So Bhutan was sort of beyond their reach geographically. Um, so that geographic location definitely helped Bhutan remain 
uh, isolated and also retain its political autonomy. That's pretty impressive. So it was never colonized. So the formation of the uh, country that we know today as Bhutan did go through some activities that are calculated, planned, and also involved military uh, forces. So uh, when Chabdrung Namgyal, the founder of Bhutan, started to unify the different valleys together, he had to fight off the Tibetan invaders from the north to secure this territory. So there were several invasions from Tibet that the Bhutanese had to ward off in the uh, 17th century and also early part of the 18th century. Then from the second half of the uh, 18th century, the Bhutanese again had to confront uh, the rising East India Company initially and later the British India, uh, which also started to have uh, issues with the Bhutanese. So Bhutan did go through several uh, military confrontations with the big neighbors as well to secure its independence. Interesting. So assisted by the mountainous terrain, it was able to fight off much more powerful invading forces during the 17th and 18th century and ended up signing peace treaties with Britain and then independent India to finalize this. And so the country is kind of just left to itself. What's the result of this? It seems to kind of withdraw from the world. Well, a lot of people would put that as self-imposed isolation. I personally disagree with that. Unlike Tibet, which went through some periods of self-imposed isolation after uh, they had some unhealthy, unpleasant interactions with the uh, external forces, including both the British forces and the Tsarist forces of Russia, Bhutan didn't really have any such uh, experience. So I personally think Bhutan's isolation is mainly one of geography and its location. Uh, It was not a calculated plan that Bhutan will remain closed. Uh, But because of Bhutan's uh, distance from the power centers, be it Delhi or Lhasa in Beijing, um, through which foreign influences came to Bhutan, uh, we were quite far away, and that is what helped Bhutan uh, sort of learn from the mistakes of people and countries that got exposed to external influences before us. Right, okay. Because it only abolished slavery in the 20th century and only joined the UN and allowed tourists in in the 1970s. It was not that Bhutan wanted to remain closed and not have tourism, but when Bhutan adopted tourism, uh, it learned from the mistakes that places like Nepal had made. So Bhutan chose to go high value, low volume, meaning that they will get tourists with good value and not just mass tourism with so many backpackers that can't be controlled, but rather go for uh, a selective, you know, well-educated, highly cultured people who would come to Bhutan with a good reason and also pay a good value to come to experience Bhutan. So that has, of course, uh, made Bhutan a fairly exclusive destination, which people again interpret as Bhutan wanting to close itself. Uh, It's not the case that Bhutan wants to close up. If people are willing to pay that value, Bhutan would happily welcome any number. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Can you just chat us through how the political system actually works? 
Uh, what we have in the system, if you look at the pre-Buddhist system or the Buddhist system that uh, informs people's cultures and mores here, we have a very democratic value system. And on top of that, um, a decentralized form of governance and people empowerment programs have been in place for many decades now. Uh, since the 60s, uh, even from the time of the third king, uh, who instituted the National Assembly of elected members, uh, who also had a um, Royal Advisory Council uh, constituted, the process of democracy started since 1960s. And then the fourth king has again taken that further to make local government stronger, uh, make people elect local government officials. So this process of democracy, democratization and decentralization has been going on for quite a few decades and people are not totally alien to it. Right. So there's a fairly powerful monarchy in the country, but over the years it has given away more and more of its power to elected officials. What we have now new or what we had new since 2008 is really a bicameral parliament where the National Council is directly elected by the people, the National Assembly also is elected by the people, and we had this modern system of, sort of national elections. Interesting. So it's a fully-fledged democracy now. So what role does the king actually play? The monarchy still has a very, very central and important role to play in the Bhutanese society and the Bhutanese psyche. So people are yet to get a clear idea of what the different roles of these different institutions ought to be. And I think uh, in the next decade or so, people will get a much clearer idea and know how to distinguish the different roles, also know exactly what kind of expectations they can have of the parliamentarians of the political parties. Uh, so Bhutan is in a learning process, I would say. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, given how relatively young its democracy is. So one thing that Bhutan is perhaps best known for is its measure of happiness. Can you talk more about this and its impact on society? I would consider that aspect, the socio-cultural aspect of Bhutan's society, the Bhutanese people, actually far more important for the well-being of the Bhutanese than even the political process or the economic development. Of course, political processes, including democratization, are critical. Economic development that's often measured through GDP is very uh, important. But what makes Bhutan quite unique and strong at the moment, I always think, is the um, its strength from the past. And when you look at Bhutan's past, we have two phases. The first phase is really the pre-Buddhist phase where we were mostly nature-oriented. The Bhutanians have a very strong connection to their own surroundings, to nature. In fact, they have a worldview where human beings just constitute a minor part of the bigger sort of ecosystem, which consists of not only animals and birds and insects and fishes and so forth, but also many, many kinds of non-human invisible spirits. And that is what informs the Bhutanese worldview today 
which has helped Bhutan retain very strong ecology. And Bhutan has managed to be a champion of environment conservation in the world as the only sort of um, carbon negative uh, country, uh, as uh, the country that has uh, committed to keep more than 60% of its uh, surface under forest coverage and so forth. So that is one very important strength that keeps the Bhutanese society um, uh, quite, uh, you could say, um, holistic in its approach, very progressive. Yeah, absolutely. Then the second is really the Buddhist influence, where the Bhutanese think more about the inner well-being, the state of the mind, as much as they do with the material comfort, the external development. And that has helped, again, keep people content, happy, or uh, at least sort of um, get some degree of satisfaction, even when there are things lacking in the external conditions. And uh, it has also definitely been a deterrent in terms of serious corruption, serious violence. Uh, so that Buddhist outlook of non-violence, of compassion, loving kindness, of interdependence has helped people develop society with good community solidarity, with uh, a greater sense of responsibility, uh, self-respect, respect for others and so forth. So these components, um, these values have remained diffused across the society in the past. That's such a unique outlook. It was the fourth king who sort of crystallized this idea into this modern term, gross national happiness, which is, of course, coined based on gross national product or uh, gross uh, national income. So um, when he was asked what Bhutan's GNP, gross national product, was, he sort of very uh, poetically or uh, extemporaneously, definitely, said, no, gross national happiness is more important to us than gross national product. And that was the birth of gross national happiness. Right. And how has this developed? Our first prime minister came up with the four pillars to support gross national happiness. The four pillars being socio-economic development, um, um, uh, good governance, environment conservation, and cultural preservation. Then we have now the Center for Bhutan Studies and Gross National Happiness Research, uh, which has come up with nine domains these domains broken down into some 72 indicators or so to measure people's happiness level and uh, you know, people's sufficiency in terms of happiness. That's fascinating. Well, I actually feel like that takes us really nicely to my next question, which is if there's a unique holiday or festival that's celebrated in Bhutan. I would say yes. And uh, just as I was laying out the cultural evolution of Bhutan or the historical development in Bhutan into these different phases, the pre-Buddhist nature-oriented phase, the Buddhist phase, uh, which focused on the state of the mind, and then the modern phase today. Our festivals could also be broken up into those three categories. Bhutan has too many public holidays sometimes. <laughs> As a believer in productivity, I sometimes find that public holidays are kind of a nuisance. But on the whole, the happiness culture of Bhutan does go very well with the number of public holidays we have here. <laughs> what do you mean? 
Now we are talking about many national holidays and then local valleys have their own holidays associated with the different festivals happening in those places. So, yeah, Bhutanese on the whole must be taking some 20 to 30 days off uh, just for festivals. Wow, that's loads. So what we have, we have one category of festivals that are associated with nature and the astrological and uh, 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 cosmological events like the New Year these winter solstice and Bhutan happens to have about five different new years celebrated within the kingdom um, we have some uh, valleys in the west celebrating new year which would be sometime in November then we have others celebrating in December and again further in February and uh, January so Bhutan has quite a number of new years that people celebrate across the country um, then we have events like winter solstice there's also the uh, blessed water day which happened just a few weeks ago so these are public national holidays associated with the natural and astrological events then we have the buddhist holidays the birthday of the buddha or the, the day the buddha passed away the day the buddha gave his first sermon um, in few days time we'll be having the descent of the Buddha from heaven after he went to visit his mother in heaven and so forth. So we have the second class of Buddhist holidays and of course the, uh, the death anniversary of the founder of Bhutan, Shabtung Naung Namgyal. That's incredible. Thank you so much for that overview, Karma, and for your time today. No problem at all. I'm quite happy. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Dr. Karma Funcho. Join us next time where we'll be exploring the South American nation of Bolivia, which like many nations in the area has a complex history with colonization, but whose indigenous population gives it an extra point of difference. As always, please do read us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Bhutan or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Ashley Brown. See you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works.